Hi everyone, welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis Podcast. This is the only podcast out there where every single day we give you a verse-by-verse analysis of the gospel reading of the day. It's quite a unique podcast. I hope you're appreciating from the approach that this ministry takes. Today we're looking at a reading that you only get to hear once every three years, so on a Sunday in year C. So we're looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live on bread alone. Then he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant. The devil said to him, I shall give you all this power and glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I may give it to whomever I wish. All this will be yours, if you worship me. Jesus said to him in reply, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then he led him to Jerusalem, made him stand on the parapet of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him in reply, It also says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. So this is probably a familiar reading to you, and there's some interesting features here in Luke's account of this that we should highlight as we go through. So this is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and Jesus has just been baptised by John the Baptist in Perea, and he was given an anointing by the Holy Spirit and a commission for his ministry. So we get to verse 1 of chapter 4, filled with the Holy Spirit. So all through the Gospel of Luke, there's an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And in particular, Luke is concerned with showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Isaiah passage, which says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's a messianic prophecy. And in fact, Jesus will quote that about himself later in this same chapter. So Luke is always trying to highlight to his readers how Jesus is the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's what he says here. He says, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and he returned from the Jordan. So the Jordan was where John baptized Jesus. It's in the southeast of Israel, if you look at a map. And Jesus now moves roughly northwest towards central Israel. And he's led by the Spirit into the desert. Notice that Jesus doesn't go there on his own initiative. It's the Spirit that leads Jesus to the wilderness, the spirit that he's just been anointed with that sends him to the wilderness. So this word wilderness can be translated desert, and it was depicted in the Old Testament as the realm of evil powers. So often in the Old Testament, it talks about wasteland and wilderness being the place of evil powers, often symbolized by the kind of beasts that live there. So you can look at that in Leviticus 16 and also Isaiah 35. So where is this wilderness? Well, we're not told but it's probably the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea, somewhere in that area. 
Luke tells us he was there for 40 days. Now, Jesus clearly stays there for this amount of time deliberately. This is a deliberate amount of time. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that it's 40 days. So he's recapitulating the history of Israel in himself. What do we mean by that? Well, there's some significant events where Israel undergoes some sort of trial for 40 days, or the leaders of Israel undergo a trial that lasts for 40 days. And Jesus, in a way, gathers up all of Israel's history and he fulfills it, he perfects it, and he embodies Israel's history as the perfect Israelite, as the one who suffers on behalf of Israel. For example, Moses went up the mountain for 40 days, that's in Exodus 24, and in fact, it tells us that he fasted for 40 days, that's in Exodus 34, verse 28. And the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. And there's plenty of other places where things happen for a period of 40 days as well. So it's a significant number in Israel history. And Luke tells us he goes to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The phrasing here seems to suggest that the reason Jesus goes out to the wilderness was for this purpose, to be tested by the devil. That's why he went out there. So he felt it necessary to be tempted by the devil. Why? Well, he's recapitulating the journey of Israel in himself. And there was a period where Israel was tempted in the wilderness before they could inherit the promises. Now, Israel in the wilderness largely failed a lot of those temptations in the wilderness. But Jesus, as the perfect Israelite, is going to pass all those temptations. In fact, he can even extend it bigger than that. You can say that Jesus here is representing all of humanity. He's succeeding where Adam failed. Adam was tempted and fell into temptation. Jesus will be tempted, but won't fall into temptation. And interestingly, in a way, Jesus seems to only use his human nature here. Uh, A lot of uh, early church fathers talked about the temptation of Jesus being like Jesus winning over the devil with his right hand tied behind his back, because it seems like Jesus only uses his human nature here. He doesn't use any supernatural powers. He doesn't seem to exercise his divine powers at all. He just wins over using the human nature. So he's succeeding where Adam failed. And this whole episode here where he faces off against Satan initiates an extended campaign against the forces of darkness, which will play out in the rest of the gospel. Luke tells us he ate nothing during those days. So Jesus chooses to eat nothing for 40 days. And when they were over, he was hungry. Now, medically, with fasting, you do stop feeling hungry after a few days. But if you don't have any substantial food for a long period of time, as Jesus has here, the body will begin to get desperate and you'll begin to feel hunger again, which is what happens here to Jesus. So in a way here, the fasting aspect of it highlights both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. He clearly has heard from God to go out into the wilderness. So that's uh, an aspect of his divine nature in a way. And he was able to fast for 40 days. That would suggest that he's got some supernatural power here. But he still felt hungry. So there's the human aspect of it. So it's an interesting interplay. Verse 3. So we're told here that the devil is who comes to tempt him. And the Greek word here is diabolos, which basically means slanderer. And diabolos is used in the Septuagint to translate the word Satan in the Old Testament. So in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, it talks there about the Satan, which means the adversary. And when that's translated to Greek, it's diabolos or slanderer. Now, Matthew's account of this calls him the tempter, and then Mark's version actually calls him Satan. So, amongst the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
you've got three different titles for the devil in this same story. Uh, we have Satan, the tempter, and the devil. All three names are used for this same episode. Now, Luke is going to refer to Satan a lot during the Gospel of Luke. Satan is an immaterial being who can see a lot of what's going on in the world. And here, it looks like Satan sees Jesus out in the desert and goes to tempt him. It's not clear what form the devil takes, though. We don't get told anything about that. One question that's often raised, and it's a good question, is at this point, how much does the devil know about Jesus? Well, it's almost certain that he knows that Jesus is the Son of God, because the demons know this elsewhere in the Gospels. Now, you could say that, well, the reason they know this later is because of Satan's interaction with him here. But I think it's more reasonable to think that Satan would know that Jesus is the Son of God. And in fact, that's the reason he goes to tempt him, because he knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Satan also knows that Jesus will play a pivotal role in turning people back to God. But what Satan doesn't know is that Jesus plans to do all these things by dying. That is not clear to Satan at this point. And the church fathers are pretty clear on that. They... In a way, they believe Jesus tricked the devil when he died on the cross. The devil thought he'd won, but Jesus had in fact tricked him. So keep that in mind. Satan knows what Jesus' overall goal is, but he doesn't know that he's going to achieve it by his death. Now, at this point, Satan sees that Jesus is at his weakest. The reason he comes to Jesus now is because Jesus has begun to feel hungry. So Satan comes in and he figures that if he can get Jesus to fall into temptation and to give in and to stop trusting God, then Jesus' mission will fail. So this is Satan being very clever, getting Jesus to fail before his mission even begins. Satan does not want the kingdom of God to come. He wants to stay in control of the world. Remember that Satan... Satan's kingdom is running the world at this point. He doesn't want the kingdom of God to overtake the kingdom of Satan. So he's going to give Jesus three temptations and which start off subtle and in a way they end up being quite audacious. So this, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, and you can probably translate this since you are the son of God, that's probably the best way to think about this. Since you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, the wilderness was filled with stones, and the devil knows that Jesus is hungry. He also knows that Jesus, as a son of God, does have the power to change stones into loaves if he wants to. So, the devil's goal here is for Jesus to give into his hunger and to use his personal power rather than to trust God. That's what he's trying to get him to do, to stop trusting God and to just use his supernatural power because he's hungry. Verse 4, Jesus answered him, It is written... Now, you'll see here, Jesus refutes each of the devil's temptations by quoting scripture at him. And as we'll see, Satan is going to quote scripture too. So from this, we learn that Satan does know scripture and he can twist it. So what we're going to kind of see here is a battle between Jesus and Satan about who can use the word of God the best. So Jesus is in effect saying, I know the word of God and I trust the word of God better than you do, Satan. So he, Jesus answered uh, the devil about the bread by saying one does not live on bread alone. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus actually quotes the longer version, which is this, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that comes straight from Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, which is a verse in context which recalls God's gift of manna to the Israelites in response to their hunger. So Jesus' point here in quoting from Deuteronomy 8 about man does not live by bread alone, is he's saying to Satan, there is more important food than physical food. 
So I'm not going to give in to my hunger. That's what he says. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, he talks about how physical food will never fully satisfy, but only he can satisfy. So Jesus here is willing to make God and God's word his first priority, even over his own bodily needs. This is an incredible sacrifice on the part of Jesus. Verse 5, then the devil took him up. Now, Matthew's version tells us they went up a high mountain. So this is either some sort of supernatural mountain, which you can't see with your naked eyes, or it's a mountain in the area of Israel. But either way, it's a mountain that can apparently see the whole world. So the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant. Now, this might be a hyperbole when it says all the kingdoms of the world. It could mean that they could see a lot of different lands from where they were. But it could also be, because it does say in a single instant, this could be a supernatural vision of all the kingdoms of the world. Verse 6, the devil said to him, I shall give you all this power and glory. Another translation is, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. So the devil wants Jesus to desire owning these kingdoms. Jesus is in effect being offered a shortcut to achieving his messianic objectives because his messianic objective is to build the kingdom of God. And Satan here says, you can have all these kingdoms straight away. He's saying to Jesus, look, you can have this kingly power without having to suffer at all. Now, the devil here is probably focusing on a kind of earthly power, like the Caesar Augustus power that he has over nations. In the end, Jesus does receive a kingdom, and he receives power and glory, but he receives them from the Father, not from the devil. The devil continues, he says, I shall give you all this power and glory, for it has been handed over to me, or you can translate that, for it has been delivered to me. So the devil owns the kingdoms of the world. John chapter 12 calls the devil the ruler of this world. We often forget this. Satan at the time of Jesus' ministry was the ruler of the world. And in a sense, he still does rule the world, although now he has to contend with the kingdom of God. Satan says to Jesus, and I may give it to whomever I wish. It's interesting. It's like Satan has the power to give part of the kingdom to whoever he wants. Verse 7, all this will be yours if you worship me. So the devil knows that if he can get Jesus to worship him, Jesus will sin, and therefore he's not going to have God's favor, and he's not going to be able to carry out his mission. So the devil is really tempting Jesus to, in all these subtle ways, that will make Jesus stop trusting God. That's the goal of all of these temptations. Verse 8, Jesus said to him in reply, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. So this is another quote from Deuteronomy. It's from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. And in the context of Deuteronomy 6, the passage goes on to prohibit worshipping false gods. So that's exactly what's happening here. I think the application here is pretty clear. Jesus is saying to Satan, if you really believe scripture, you know that I would never worship anyone but God, because that is what scripture teaches. Now, in a sense here, since Jesus himself is God, and later he's quite explicit that he himself is the Lord, Jesus can be worshipped As well, and that's what the disciples do at the end of the gospel in Luke chapter 24, verse 52. They worship him as Lord. So when Jesus says, You shall worship the Lord your God, he's possibly including himself in that description as well. Verse 9 Then the Satan led him to Jerusalem. So apparently they get miraculously transported to Jerusalem here, or maybe he shows Jesus a vision of Jerusalem or something. He made Jesus stand on the parapet of the temple. 
some sort of pinnacle of the temple. It's not really clear what this is. The Greek here literally means little wing. So some sort of side pointed part of the temple. Certainly there were high ledges and porticos on the roof of the temple. So it's probably one of those. Now, interestingly, Luke's gospel begins and ends with the temple. And here we have the temple in focus again. So the devil takes Jesus up to a high point on the temple and says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, a lot of people look at this verse and they understand that Satan is trying to get Jesus to kill himself. That's possible, but it's more likely that Satan knows that if Jesus jumps, the angels will actually save him. It's just that he wants Jesus to give up trusting God. That's the whole point, to get him to stop trusting God. Uh, And so maybe it's not that he's trying to get Jesus to actually kill himself. Well, that's certainly possible. Now, of course, when you think about what actually does happen to Jesus in the end, rather than throwing himself down from the temple to end his life... Jesus is taken up to heaven at the end of his earthly ministry. So there's actually an opposite there to what Satan was hoping for. Now, the devil again quotes a scripture to Jesus because that's the tactic Jesus has been using. Verse 10, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and with their hands, they will support you lest you dash your foot against a stone. So here, the devil quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 to 12. Now, in context, the psalm writer is basically saying that God will support righteous people with angels. And that would be particularly true at the temple because that's where God was thought to dwell. Verse 12, Jesus said to him in reply, It also says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Or you can translate that, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. The word for test and tempt are basically the same. So notice that Jesus doesn't really engage the devil's misinterpretation of the psalm. He doesn't engage on that level. Instead, Jesus once again quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from Deuteronomy all three times. Here he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in context of Deuteronomy 6, this was referring to the way the Israelites rebelled against God in the wilderness. In fact, in that Uh, in the wilderness, the Israelites demanded that God give proof of his existence. So failing to trust, they put God to the test. They literally did try to put God to the test. Jesus' point here, when he says to the devil, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, is that you can't test and you should not test God's promises in a human kind of way. He says, rather, the promises are to be trusted, as in Psalm 91, that's what it says, not tested. So God will not be forced to prove himself at our bidding. Later in the New Testament, it's pretty clear about that. In fact, the very next verse in Psalm 91 that the devil quoted at him says, You can tread upon the asp and the viper, trample the lion and the dragon. So that's the very next verse that Satan conveniently didn't quote. But Jesus will refer to this verse when he gives his disciples power to tread upon serpents. That's in Luke chapter 10, which seems to be an allusion to this. Now, in a very real sense, when Jesus says to Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, he's sort of saying, you shall not put me to the test because he's the Lord God. So when Jesus says, you shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test, that's the end of the test. So the temptations end at this point. So Jesus has had three temptations here in the wilderness, which echo the temptations that the Israelites had in the wilderness. 
So the Israelites experienced a lot of temptations in the wilderness, but these three were ones that they certainly failed. So they gave in to their demands for food and hunger. That's in Exodus 16. They forgot the God who saved them and they practiced idolatry. That's in Exodus 32. And then they tested God. That's in Exodus 17. So Jesus is succeeding where the Israelites failed. Now, if you think about it, these three temptations have to be real temptations for them to have any effect. Jesus really felt tempted by these. Some part of Jesus' humanity must have desired the things that the devil was tempting him with. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says Jesus was tested but did not sin. So it's clearly Jesus is being tested here. It's a real temptation. We shouldn't just say that just because Jesus is God that he didn't feel the temptations. He really did. And he chose to resist them. Verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him. So here Jesus shows a principle that's later taught in James 4 verse 7, which is resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's exactly what happens here. Jesus wins. But Luke adds that he departed from him for a time. Or another translation there is, until an opportune time. So the devil fails this one, but he goes to plan another strategy to thwart Jesus. And primarily his plan, basically, is to plant seeds of corruption within Judas. And we see this flourishing in chapter 22. So the devil basically says, well, it's time for me to start plotting the arrest and the death of Jesus. That's basically what the devil tries to start doing. Matthew's version tells us that at this point, the angels come and look after Jesus, but Luke doesn't mention it here. This whole scene of Jesus in the wilderness probably means lots of different things. We've looked at the literal sense. The church fathers have given it lots of allegorical interpretations too. For example, the whole scene might be an allegory for man's exile from God and also kind of for the realm of sin. If the wilderness is the place of the devil and sin, Jesus goes to that place. So you could say that Christ goes into the wilderness to rescue man from his exile in sin. Since Adam's expulsion from the garden, man has languished in the desert of spiritual death, cut off from paradise. But here, Christ pursues man in the desert to take him from the grip of the devil. That's a common interpretive theme in the church fathers. So, in the next section of Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry by returning to Nazareth. And that particular section is read a whole lot during the lectionary. So, you can hear it quite a few times. And you can certainly hear it on January 10th every year. That's where the next section of Luke chapter 4 is, when Jesus returns to Nazareth and has his famous sermon. So let's now turn to the Catechism. And there's quite a few references here that you might never hear otherwise. There's some really interesting links made to the Catechism. Paragraph 695 is about symbols of the Holy Spirit. The symbolism of anointing with oil also signifies the Holy Spirit, to the point of becoming a synonym for the Holy Spirit. In Christian initiation, anointing is the sacramental sign of confirmation, called chrismation, in the churches of the East. Its full force can be grasped only in relation to the primary anointing accomplished by the Holy Spirit, that of Jesus. Christ means the anointed by God's Spirit. So here in Luke, when it says Jesus was led by the Spirit, it's because he's just been anointed by the Spirit, and we see this anointing as a whole symbol of the Holy Spirit in and of itself. Paragraph 2855, this is about the final line of the Our Father, which is 
the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. So paragraph 2855 comments on Luke here. It says, The ruler of this world has mendaciously attributed to himself the three titles of kingship, power, and glory. Christ the Lord restores them to his father and to our father until he hands over the kingdom to him when the mystery of salvation will be brought to its completion and God will be all in all. So Satan, as we see here, tried to take kingdom power and glory for himself and to actually kind of force Jesus to take it by worshipping Satan. But we know that Jesus gets his own kingdom power and glory. And that's what we say in every Mass. Paragraph 2096 in Adoration. Adoration is the first act of the virtue of religion. To adore God is to acknowledge him as God, as the creator and saviour, the Lord and master of everything that exists, as infinite and merciful love. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve, says Jesus, citing Deuteronomy. So our first obligation in religion is to worship and adore God. That's what the catechism says. On the flip side, paragraph 2119, this is about irreligion. Tempting God consists in putting his goodness and almighty power to the test by word or deed. Thus, Satan tried to induce Jesus to throw himself down from the temple and by this gesture force God to act. Jesus opposed Satan with the word of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The challenge contained in such tempting of God wounds the respect and trust we owe to our Creator and Lord. It always harbors doubt about his love, his providence, and his power. So quite a strong verse there that links to uh, this, the temptation that Satan gives Jesus about throwing himself down from the temple. It sees that as a way of not trusting God. Lastly, paragraph 538, this is a summary of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. The gospel speak of a time of solitude for Jesus in the desert immediately after his baptism by John. Driven by the Spirit into the desert, Jesus remains there for 40 days without eating. He lives among wild beasts and angels minister to him. At the end of this time, Satan tempts him three times, seeking to compromise his filial attitude towards God. Jesus rebuffs these attacks, which recapitulate the temptations of Adam in paradise and of Israel in the desert, and the devil leaves him until an opportune time. So what we said earlier in today's episode about Jesus recapitulating both Adam and Israel, it's confirmed in the Catechism. It's a very Catholic principle to see Jesus as recapitulating the history of Israel so that he can become the perfect Israelite to take on the sins of Israel and thereby extension the sins of the whole world because Israel is meant to represent and to minister to the whole world. And when Israel fails, Jesus steps in their place to become the new Israel. I hope you've learned something new from today's episode. There's a whole lot you can take from uh, the temptation in the wilderness. If you think there's others in your life who would benefit from hearing this, please share it with them. This is a unique ministry. It's the only one out there like this, where we take a Catholic look, an in-depth verse-by-verse look at the scriptures every single day. If you are enjoying this ministry, please consider supporting the ministry financially. And there's all sorts of exclusives you can get access to by doing that. And the link for the Patreon page is in the episode description. Thanks once again for listening to this episode and hopefully we'll see you again tomorrow.